I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Welcome to the Field is designed for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. However, this season, we will be talking all about uncomfortable conversations, and each episode will touch on a different type of uncomfortable conversation. So even if you're not working or caregiving in the child welfare field, this season might be for you. Over the next two weeks, we really have a treat in store for you. Today, we will be talking with Professor Jillian Schofield, coming to us all the way from England and the School of Social Work at the University of East Anglia. And Professor Schofield will be talking to us about the secure base model. Next time, we're going to go deeper into the secure base model and talk with Dr. Laura Biggert about the team as a secure base model. And that's a way that we operationalize that model at work. All right, here we go. Welcome, Jill. Hi, Cassie. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Okay, so um, before becoming a professor of child and family social work, I uh, began and beginning my academic career. I was a qualified teacher and social worker specializing in child and adolescent mental health and child protection in the courts. And at UEA, I taught attachment and child development to social workers for, for 30 years. But in my research since 1997, I've, I've led a series of funded projects to improve outcomes for children in state care. And so over the years, I've worked with government policymakers, practitioners, caregivers, and of course, young people. Um, and with rising numbers of children in care and growing concerns that we have in the UK for placement stability and mental health for all young people, we feel that having a, a framework like the Secure Base with materials on websites and so on can, can really help promote emotional well-being. And, and that's been that's really been my ambition for the last 25 years. Oh, wow. Well, we're so grateful to have you with us. Let's start kind of at the very beginning and give us a brief overview of what the Secure Base model is and how you came to it. Okay, so the Secure Base model is a, a practical therapeutic caregiving framework based on theory and research. And it's been designed to help practitioners in family support and child protection, kinship and foster carers, adoptive parents, residential care staff and, and teachers too, to build positive relationships and improve outcomes for vulnerable children. So the Secure Base model was first developed about, about 20 years ago when Dr. Mary Beek, a friend and colleague of mine at UEA, and I were trying to make sense in our research of what the more successful foster carers were offering to children. So we turn to classic attachment theory in the work of Mary Ainsworth. And Ainsworth, back in the 1970s, identified the caregiving qualities that helped infants build secure attachments. And we applied these to our foster care research and went on to develop those findings into a therapeutic model that is relevant for infants, but also older children and young people who are often the subject of our research. Uh, and we made connections in five caregiving dimensions with key aspects of children's development so that practitioners could focus on and, and set goals for uh, addressing children's difficulties and promoting their strengths. And uh, we chose to focus on the term secure base because in attachment theory, a secure base is, is provided for a child through a relationship with one or more caregivers, which provides a reliable safe haven that reduces the child's anxiety and promotes security and resilience. So it's important to bear in mind that the emphasis here is on a secure base for exploration, which was John Bowlby's original term. So the real evidence of success is not only the child being able to seek comfort from a caregiver, 
It's what that relationship enables the child to do. So trying new activities, enjoying play, education and so on. I I remember a foster carer saying to me she wasn't sure if her foster child had a secure attachment to her. Uh, And I asked her what the child could do now that they couldn't do when first placed with her. And she said, oh, he's completely different. He sleeps well at night. He's made friends. He's joined a football team and takes pride in how he looks. And those are the changes that matter. And and of course, that was a a simple uh, answer to give her in what can be quite a, a difficult area. So if I were to summarize, is it accurate? And correct me if I'm getting this wrong here, that what the secure base model really does is is operationalize traditional attachment theory for foster caregivers um, and and children involved in the in the child welfare system. It provides a framework for caregivers to to lean on and kind of guide um, their relationships and their interactions with those children. And yeah, that's exactly how I would, I would describe it. So I think what it does is it identifies those key elements that carers. Are, Birth parents, foster carers, adoptive parents, residential workers can understand in the child and try to then make sense of. So you're absolutely right. It does draw on a wealth of attachment theory and developmental psychology research in attachment, which I think over the years has broadened our ideas about what attachment is. It's not just about infants and mothers in intact families. It's much bigger than that. I think that's fascinating. And one of the questions we hear sometimes from caregivers, they are kind of all related to attachment, right? I think that there is a desire when you're a caregiver to ensure a secure base, uh, attached relationship with the children you're caregiving for. And there's also a desire to preserve their attachment with their primary caregiver, you know, in case they return home. So this model is so rich. I think it really helps uh, give lots of discussion points to all the different ways that you might be thinking about attachment relationship as a caregiver. I mean, I think it was always the case, although it's it's often been misinterpreted, that John Bowlby talked about children having multiple attachments mm. and attachments growing for older children as well as babies. So I think it's really important that we think about attachment theory in in this new way. Oh, that's super helpful. Thank you. So can you describe the dimensions to our listeners? And I'm going to make an extra request. Could you describe the visual that goes with it? Because one of the things that I adore about your work is how straightforward it is. When you start to hear words like attachment theory and and we're thinking about John Bowlby, right, and all, all those prior kind of researchers, I can sometimes get a little bit intimidated about what that means. But what I love when I look at your work is it is so visually compelling. It's so clear the way you've laid out the dimensions. Okay, yeah, so the the, the five dimensions in in the model can be represented as a star diagram, which is in itself a very positive image. But what it's doing really is something very fundamental, which is showing the way in which different aspects of caregiving and different aspects of children's development work together and interact um, and you're quite right. The star diagram in itself has been quite powerful. It's so sense, powerful. <laughs> well, when I was teaching in uh, in Norway on one occasion, um, somebody turned up with the star diagram on their T-shirt, <laughs> gave me a T-shirt with it on and, and had Team Secure Base Norway, which I think was very exciting. <laughs> OK, so, so just to describe some of the, the, the five dimensions uh, yeah. to everybody. So. Each dimension has a caregiving quality. So, for example, availability um, is linked to helping the child to trust. Um, So these dimensions need to be understood in terms of the child's history, behavior, 
age and stage and what we've called the caregiving cycle, which is the interaction of the caregiver's thinking, feeling and behaviour and its impact on the child's thinking, feeling and behaviour, which in turn affects uh, and needs to be understood by the caregiver. And these cycles are going around many, many times in the course of a day. And what we're trying to do is to shape those into sort of positive, positive cycles. So if we use this first dimension in a bit more detail as an example, I think that will make it clear how the model works. So availability helping the child to trust focuses on the caregiver's ability to convey to the child a strong sense of being physically and emotionally available to meet their needs, both when they're together and when they're apart. So when the caregiver can do this in a range of circumstances and reliably, the child begins to trust that their needs will be met warmly and consistently. So as anxiety is reduced and over time, the child gains confidence to explore the world, safe in the knowledge that care and protection is there if needed. And that's this secure base for exploration idea. But if we think about what availability means for a three-month-old infant coming into foster care, Uh, and using the caregiving cycle, it's clear availability means the carer tuning in very carefully, minute by minute, Mm. to what helps that particular baby to relax and to trust the carer to feed and to hold them. And when the baby starts to build trust, this will appear in their acceptance of closeness, but also their ability to engage with sensory pleasure in the world of toys. And for a teenager, availability also means tuning into that young person But it's important to think about how the carer signals they're there for them and can be trusted to look after them, because that's going to depend on a much longer history of the young person's experience of trust, distrust, trauma, perhaps. And availability may mean holding the young person in mind, making sure your mobile phone is switched on, texting them at the school lunch break to see how their day is going and so on. So you need very practical ways of communicating your availability. Right. Feeling available, uh, telling the child you're available is not was not enough. <laughs> so if we then look at that connected to the other dimensions, you can see that tuning into the individual child is closely connected to what Ainsworth called sensitivity, mm. which is about helping the child in this model to manage their feelings. And it's about thinking about what the child is thinking and feeling, being curious about what's going on in their mind and how that might be affecting their behaviour. And this is a a key dimension, as our research and others have shown, because if you're sensitive to what's going on in the child's mind, seeing the world from the child's point of view, it's likely you're also going to be able to understand their need for connection with their birth family, for example, or to work extra hard to find exactly what it is that will help them to relax and and, feel successful. Um, And then that brings us on, if you like, to the third dimension, which we've called, which Ainsworth called, and we've also called acceptance. Building the child's self-esteem is the developmental outcome that we've added to this. And it tackles a common and fundamental problem for children from troubled backgrounds. Mm. So acceptance is accepting the child for who they are, even when they need help for their behaviour to change. And it's essential for children to feel that there is something about them that is lovable um, and that they can start to take pride in themselves, but also cope with setbacks. And that dimension of acceptance in turn contributes to what we've called cooperation, which helps the child to feel effective. So it's about helping a child to uh, feel more confident, 
And often children that we're talking about may have felt powerlessness, powerless in other situations. So for them, safe boundaries, being able to make choices about foster carers have talked about, the first thing we do is try to make sure they have a choice of breakfast cereal or the colour of their duvet cover or whatever it might be, quite small things, but nevertheless contributing to that experience for the child. And then the fifth dimension doesn't come from attachment theory, family membership, helping Mm. the child to belong. I mean, we were doing research in foster care. So for us, um, belonging in a family was a crucial element of any child's sense of security. Um, But I think it's true for all children, whether they're in their birth family, whether they're in residential care. The need to have a sense of belonging is crucial for them to be able to build new relationships and also establish an identity. So I think a sense of identity is a key part of the model, really. Um, So I think the message here is that children... Um, that that need our help are likely to have a number of relationships and we need to help them get the best they can from all those relationships. So it's not just the key attachment relationships, it's all their relationships that can make them feel more secure. It's lovely because that offers so many different opportunities for children to engage in these positive relationships, right? Takes a little bit of the pressure off for some of those primary caregivers in some ways. Yeah, and I think that goes back to that idea of the secure base, really. So I think that we know that for some children, for example, actually the most difficult relationship they can build is a new relationship with somebody in the role of a mother or father if they've had difficult relationships with people in that role before Um, and it may be that it is a teacher or a grandmother or an older child in the placement who actually helps them relax for the first time so I think it's incredibly valuable for social workers and and psychologists to think about a network of relationships that that surround a child and, and they all have something to offer without them necessarily becoming attachment figures Right. Oh, that's fascinating. So I know that it's been some years since you developed this model, and it's it's very widespread at this point um, in the UK and in some other places. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the ways this model has been used? Okay, I think I think the best way to start thinking about it is is the different stages, if you like, of the child's journey, whether it's through uh, in their birth family, through receiving a helpful intervention that's going to help them stay with their birth family, or indeed a journey through placement. So initially, the the model can provide a framework for assessment of the child's needs. So the focus at that point is on, on the child's needs, and that can in turn be built into that assessment, can be used for deciding on an intervention, it can be used in a court report, but it can also be used for matching a child with foster carers or with adopters or residential placement, perhaps, or indeed a kinship carer. So trying to think about um, using the dimensions, both the child development and also the caregiving dimension. Can these prospective carers or parents really help that child uh, to develop self-esteem right. and, and particularly what support they might, they might need? And then, of course, going on into a subsequent placement or subsequent uh, experience with a kinship family, um, how can professionals get involved in helping the child to achieve goals in these different areas? I think that that's a very important idea, that you're trying to all the time to think about what's your future and your ambitions for the child. How can we be ambitious for each child in these different areas uh, and help them to achieve their, their best? 
Um, so there's the child's journey side of it. And then there's the, if you like, the caregiver's journey. Yeah. So um, the model's used a lot for um, both assessing and training um, foster carers and adopters in the UK and, and also in residential care. Um, uh, not just in the UK, but, but elsewhere as well, which I'll, I'll say something about in a moment. So all the time you're trying to think about what are these carers' potential to provide a secure base. Um, if you're recruiting a new foster carer, that could be, if you like, for any child. Or if you're doing a matching, it's for a specific child. Um, and then you can think about different ways along the journey, if you like. So, for example, we have annual reviews of foster carers. So at that point, um, the dimensions might be looked at to think about where are this carer's strengths? Are they particularly good at managing and supporting both family contact, but maybe need a bit more nuance about sensitivity and so on? Oh, how neat. I would love someone to come into my home and, <laughs> and give my partner and I an assessment. I bet, I bet we have very different strengths. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other element is that is just to say something about that, and then perhaps we can reflect on all of this. Is, is the international uses of, of the model yeah. really, and that's been very, um, very exciting, really. So, there's a, sort of a range of countries from Norway to Australia who have systems that are quite similar to the UK, who've been able to, if you like, sort of put the model into their existing practice. Mm. Attachment theory is quite familiar on the whole, so it's uh, not too difficult to find ways of as you said earlier, uh, using the model as a way of explaining attachment theory of making it sort of practical. But the model has also been adopted in, in very diverse countries where there's been a very different drive, if you like, and that has been to reduce the institutionalization of children. Oh, yeah. So again, my, my close colleague has worked with me all these years, Mary B. She actually um, did some work with voluntary organizations who were helping countries to implement foster care for the first time. So she particularly worked in China, Thailand, Vietnam, and in fact, Ukraine. Uh, and there are so many countries in the world with so many children in institutional care who are looking for ways to um, develop foster care as, as really a new service. Uh, and they need a fundamental set of ideas about child development, about the quality of relationships that foster carers can offer. And so having training that uses something, you know, the di that diagram that you talked about, using something quite straightforward that people can translate into their own languages, can use directly with carers. You don't need a 30, 40 PowerPoint slide talk. Actually, you can talk your way around the model quite, quite straightforwardly. So I think that's been, um, that's been very important. And it's also helped us confirm the fact, which we had hoped, that the model can be translated into different cultures and contexts. Yeah. Which is often a question that's asked about attachment theory. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And as a parent of young children, I would say it also feels very intuitive. You know, when you're watching uh, your kiddos have big feelings and really need something from you, it's it's not difficult at all, I find, to translate to like, oh, she really just needs me to hear her, right? Like, yes. She doesn't need me yeah. to tell her it's going to be okay. She just needs me to hear her and be here. Yeah. Or yeah. she needs to be invited into the problem solving right here. Yeah, yeah. So I think that empowering of children and empowering of carers is very much part of what we would look for in practice. But I think some of the magic of attachment theory and research is that it, it makes sense of what doesn't make sense. Mm. So very often children appear to be provoking rejection when rejection is what they most 
fear. Oh, I see. Yes. So actually you're trying to very often help um, particularly foster carers, residential carers and so on, and doctors, to try and make sense of behaviour, which common sense doesn't actually help you with. Common sense would tell you that child's deliberately trying to upset you, that maybe they're not happy in your family. Right. Um, and that could be the case. But more commonly, it's because they're going to be testing out, they're going to be trying to see what it takes really to find out if you can really be trusted. Yeah, if they're safe so, here. You know, and, and I think that, I mean, that can happen in some ways in all families that children can test out their parents' limits, if you like. But for children who've come from very difficult and, and backgrounds of trauma where they where they genuinely haven't felt able to trust and they felt the need to kind of control um, situations so that they don't get hurt or they don't get upset, actually... Um, their behavior can be quite paradoxical. I think we know that from what we know about trauma and children's development. So I think the model, I think, although it seems quite simple, it's also trying to engage with some of that nuance and complexity about children's behavior. That makes really good sense. So what would be the most important thing for caregivers to know about this model if they want to try to utilize it? (laughs) I think the connections really between their caregiving and the child's experience. So this may seem a simple thing to say, but it is about the power of the relationship to in itself be therapeutic. Mm. People often, when I say a therapeutic model of caregiving, they think, oh gosh, I'm not I'm not a therapeutic caregiver. I'm just a foster care. I'm just a parent. I'm just a doctor. But basically what we know is that for children who are vulnerable, have had troubled backgrounds, troubled experiences, actually how they're gently and warmly greeted when they wake up in the morning, how they're helped to make that difficult transition into over breakfast and into school, how they're helped to settle securely at bedtime. Actually, every point in the day, that caregiving cycle is going round and messages need to go to the child about their lovability, the Mm. potential for them to change and feel more comfortable. And so I think in terms of the most important thing to know is both the power of those relationships, but also the importance of really stepping back, thinking about where that behavior comes from in the child, where their own reactions come from. So being sensitive also to the impact the child has on them. And I think a lot of that thinking about the potential of their therapeutic role as caregivers really does need somebody to bounce that idea off those ideas around with, you know, supervision. Somebody needs to be available really to explore quite why what this child does makes you feel particularly loving or indeed particularly angry Mm. or sad and what you then do with those feelings. So I think this is a, a mixture of what seems like the common or garden everyday caregiving, yeah. but with that extra element of reflection and tuning into this child's needs and, and your own reaction. So I think that's the, 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 the power of it, really. Yeah, it is incredibly powerful. In the Vermont system, we call some of that reflection on, on your own reactions and kind of your own stuff as the caregiver as your shark music when it comes up. Yes. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think actually that shark music comes from the circle of security. And I think circle of security is something that is often um, linked to this model. So in Norway, when they teach secure based model. They would often um, talk about circle of security first because that has that process of understanding the meaning of secure base mm. and, and shark music 
uh, being alert to those things. That's that's a nice connection, Cassie. Yes, it's a good connection. So we're starting to kind of run short on time, but I have two more questions if we can fit them in. So I want to know... in the many, many different places and different groups you've talked about this model with, what has most surprised you in your work with the secure base model? I suppose it's the fact that so many, uh, so such diverse range of organizations and countries and individuals have been able to take it up for themselves. And that, that's been very exciting for us. So uh, a former student of ours uh, was working with UNICEF in northern Iraq. And they're on the table of the uh, project leader for a project for displaced young people uh, was our model translated into <laughs> Arabic and Kurdish. So I think that that's been wonderful, actually. That has made us feel, first of all, that we have got it right in terms of its accessibility. But again, also the fact that it can be taken up and used in many different cultures and contexts. So that's been both pleasing and surprising. Yeah, it really speaks to the power of it. Okay, and then this is often a question we ask as we close, but if our listeners only walk away with one thing from listening to you uh, talk about the model, what is it you want them to carry with them? Well, I guess in addition to the transformational power of secure-based caregiving, if you like, I think it's also very important to remember that we all need a secure base in our relationships Mm. to reduce anxiety and help us to fulfill our potential. So troubled children need to find a secure base in their caregivers. Caregivers need to find a secure base in their own networks and in the professionals who support them. And organizations need to provide a secure base for the committed practitioners who work so hard on behalf of children and families. So I think that that notion that this is not just about infants or babies or children, it's really about a fundamental human need and understanding how that works. I think um, secure-based dimensions can help with that. That's lovely. And and you really set us up for kind of a promo here because our next episode, we're going to welcome your colleague, Dr. Laura Biggert, and we're going to talk about team as a secure base or utilizing the secure base model in a professional setting. So thank you for that <laughs> that perfect opportunity. Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's it's, uh, it's important to have that overlap, but it's certainly true for, for a secure-based model and its fundamentals as well. Absolutely. So I'm sure the folks who are listening now are dying to see the star and are looking for more resources. So where, where can they find you and, and how should they get more information? Well, the secure-based model has a website. And certainly over here, if you Google secure-based model, you come up with it, which is great. Um, so we can send, yeah, David, you can send them a link, send, put a link on the site or whatever, but Absolutely. Um, that website has got, so it's got everything, it's got explanations, but it's also got video material, it's got training programs ready to go, and we're very happy for people to use them, you don't have to pay to license them, we just ask that you acknowledge UEA in, in the use of them, but other than that, we're really keen for people to use them. And I'm also happy to have people email me, g.scofield at uea.ac.uk, um, if they have any extra queries. But oh, enjoy the website, everybody. That's marvelous. And uh, listeners, will link to it all in show notes on our site so you can access it with uh, one click. Great. Marvelous. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming today. It was a real pleasure to get to chat with you. And I know this information will be really important for lots of folks. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Field is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop. And our sound production and engineering is brought to you by Egan Media Productions. 
We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house technical production assistant, Emma Baird. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.